so this is, uh, I mean, I just put this together over a couple of months of sort of book reading and internet surfing. I'm not, not an expert on Old Testament archaeology by any means, but these are the things that struck me as uh, quite interesting finds uh, that were illuminating. Um, sometimes they simply illuminate the sort of cultural background of the text as we're looking at it. Sometimes it can go as far as corroborating the existence of particular people in, in particular times and places that are mentioned uh, in the Bible. Uh, and I will try and sort of put the caveats on as so far as, um, you know, you put three archaeologists into a room to discuss what the particular find means and you'll probably get five different opinions um, out of it. So some of this is um, a bit more speculative than others of it, and I'll try and kind of draw the lines as far as I can see them from reading around a number of different sources as to where people would kind of draw those. Uh, two um, sort of useful points to bear in mind as one approaches the whole issue of archaeology in the Bible. First from um, Dr. Brian Wood here. He mentions there's an oft-repeated adage in biblical and archaeological studies with regards to uh, efforts to reconstruct events that were thousands of years ago uh, from the bits and tatters of information that survive into the present day. He uh, notes that this adage is that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because we haven't uh, dug up the uh, Temple of Solomon, say, or whatever, uh, is not in itself evidence that there was no Temple of Solomon. Uh, it's probably evidence that we haven't dug in enough places yet, or that um, you know somebody owns the land that it is now under and have built a mosque on top of it and are very unlikely to ever let you dig there to find that very um, bit of information um, that you're longing to, to dig up. So what we can piece together from the past is by its very nature sort of fragmentary. And uh, Professor Walter Kaiser, genius, says, um, on the other hand, the facts from whatever source when fully known have consistently provided uncanny confirmation for the details of Old Testament purples, <laughs> Old Testament persons, peoples, and places. Uh, and sort of draws an inference from that, saying that since we've seen so many specific challenges over the years yield to specific data in favour of the text, it starts building up a presumption uh, that we should go with the text as being right until we've got definite contrary information. Um, so it, you don't need to have the archaeological evidence to back up what the text is saying in the Bible in order to reasonably trust it particularly because there's been lots of occasions when critics of the Bible have said things like, oh, we've got absolutely no evidence of the existence of the Hittites, or what have you, uh, therefore the Bible must be wrong. They're going from an absence of evidence to an evidence of absence, and then, lo and behold, some archaeologist's working way digs up um, archaeological proof of the existence of the Hittites. Uh, and shows that that uh, criticism was, was ill-placed, and that does uh, tend to happen. So let's look at a, a sort of going back from a, sort of uh, as long ago to uh, as near in the, the Old Testament history uh, with Sodom. This is particularly interesting. This is a, a place called uh, Tel, which kind of means uh, hill, Tel al-Hammam, uh, which... Uh, Dr. Steve Collins, archaeologist from uh, America, 
thinks is biblical Sodom. And what he did was he looked into the, the biblical text and uh, worked out, uh, he says, uh, about 25 different geographical indicators of where Sodom should be found today, according to the biblical text. Went there, started digging, predicting that you would be able to find uh, a settlement from the, from the right time frame, from the Bronze Age, uh, and uh, that was destroyed during the Middle Bronze Age. And lo and behold, he goes there, he digs, and he does indeed find uh, a Bronze Age fortified city um, with a destruction layer at the right uh, time. So that's pretty good indication that, you know, pretty good circumstantial proof at least that uh, well, that's biblical Sodom and um, what the Bible says uh, happened to it. At least there's a, a corporation that it was destroyed. There was a city there at the right time that the Bible says. So what destroyed it? When they say there's a destruction there, can they tell uh, how it's destroyed? I, it yeah, I think that that's, that's a negative, basically. You can say... Um, it was destroyed by fire. Okay. Uh, but what caused the fire? I don't know, someone with a torch or you know, burning hail for you. Who, who knows? Yes. Um, so you can't, uh, as is often the case, even in sort of the best examples, it, it's very difficult to go from archaeology to backing up everything that the Bible says in a text. You can often get a sort of partial overlap between the two as, as the most that you can kind of expect. But that's quite an interesting one. Um, let's look a little bit at the life of Joseph. Now, these are uh, some frescoes, the Beni Hassan frescoes uh, from the wall of a tomb. Uh, and I'm going to massacre these Egyptian names and things from Pharaoh Sassothis uh, II. And it depicts a Semitic desert chieftain bringing his people into Egypt in about 1890 BC. Um, so, uh, it very interesting in as much as it kind of bears out the biblical description of the, the, the material culture of the time. Particularly if you think of Joseph and think of, of things like the, the fantastic sort of multicoloured uh, coat, uh, that, that all these multicoloured uh, robes that everyone's wearing, um, the lyre, as is often mentioned in the Bible from that period, the, the kind of um, water jugs and all of the sort of uh, material that uh, would be mentioned in the Bible is backed up as being yes, well, people did wear fancy multicoloured cloaks back then. You know, uh, it wasn't. Uh, you know, was that just a lucky guess on the part of the writer that people had that uh, kind of clothing at the time, or um, did they actually know something of where which they spoke? Uh, now, this is a, a aerial uh, satellite photo of uh, a very fertile area in Egypt around uh, a lake called Koran uh, which is fed from water from one of the branches of the Nile and there used to be droughts in Egypt occasionally as we know uh, which would lead to that land in this uh, fertile area drying up um, and we know that between about 1850 and 1650 BC, bit of a vague dating range, but some took there in there, a canal was built to keep those, that particular branch of the Nile um, irrigated so that you could keep farming there. Um, and it's so effective that evidently it still successfully functions uh, to this day. And now there's no actual records of who 
built that canal. But for thousands of years, it's only been known by one name, which in Arabic is the Bar Yosef, which, of course, translates into English as the Waterway of Joseph, uh, which it fits in very nicely with the biblical depiction of Joseph as being put in uh, a post to deal with the upcoming famine that he had predicted from the, the dream of Pharaoh. To see uh, the seven years of plenty and the seven years of... and so on. Now, under Pharaoh, uh, again, Senawat III, you know, um, estates owned by nobles passed to the monarchy, which fits in with uh, Genesis 47.20. And we know of uh, a chancellor, Anku, at the time, uh, which does match the biblically quoted Egyptian name of Joseph, uh, which basically means he who is called Anku. Um, so again, it fits. doesn't prove that they're the same person, but that fits. And we've got a reconstruction here from the front of David Rowell's book, Pharaohs and Kings. That's a reconstruction of um, a statue um, that's been found from the period. It's uh, obviously uh, a sort of rich dignitary from the way he was buried and money spent on it and so on. He's got yellow skin painted, i.e. not Egyptian, foreigner, and an Asiatic hairstyle. Uh, he's got traces of a multicoloured coat still on the, on the statue and a staff symbol of authority um, from the right kind of period. So a high up Asiatic um, guy in a multicoloured cloak who um, had a, a very decent burial. Maybe it's Joseph. Some people think it is. Some people say, well, you can't really tell. Um, but at the very least, it kind of backs up the idea that it was possible for someone from the non-Egyptian, from the Asiatic culture, to rise to a position of prominence within Egyptian society at that time period. And again, to have that kind of material culture that's depicted uh, in the Bible. So, as I say, some of that is a little kind of just sort of hints or interesting, a bit vague. The Exodus. Um... Now, what you have to realise when you come to the Exodus is there is huge disagreement amongst the scholars over the dating of, well, the dating of Egyptian chronology, in and of itself, for one thing, and how you relate what we can work out about Egyptian chronology to biblical chronology is another huge matter of dispute. Um, so you end up with multiple different attempts to kind of piece together the, the whole picture. Uh, and many scholars, many scholars would date the Exodus to uh, 1208 BC under Ramesses II. I think there are quite a good argument for dating the Exodus to 1446 BC. There are different ways of reading the numbers that are given in the biblical text. If you read them very straightforwardly, you get the 1446 uh, Exodus, but there are ways of interpreting it um, not too ad hocly that would fit in with the 1208. Um, Exodus. And if it was this earlier 1446 Exodus, then this guy here, uh, Minotep II, would have been the pharaoh of the of the biblical Exodus. <laughs> now, the dream stealer of Thutmothis IV. This is quite interesting stuff. Uh, this is at the foot of the famous Sphinx, and here's a, a close-up of this uh, account of a dream. 
And uh, Satmothis IV argues in this account that he is the rightful successor to Amenhotep II, Amenhotep II, um, even though he was not the firstborn son. Which, of course, is interesting if you try and, are trying to match this to the um, Exodus account, wherein the last plague is meant to have killed all of the firstborn children, all the firstborn sons. And it recounts basically this dream in which he says, uh, I fell asleep under the, under the Sphinx, which was sort of partly buried in the sand, and I had this dream in which one of the Egyptian gods came to me and said, if you dig me up out of the sand, then you can be king, even though you're not the firstborn son. And I did, so I, so I should be, everyone, right? <laughs> it's legitimate for me to be king, even though I'm not the firstborn. So that's a, an interesting uh, correlation. And then, um, going on a little bit, a uh, generation later, Amenhotep IV succeeds his father, Amenhotep III, perhaps after a bit of a co-regency. And he's very interesting, in as much as he started uh, building temples to Artan, that is, the, the sun god, the divinized sun disk, at a place called Karnak. And he changed his name to Arkanartan to honour that god and he built a new capital city that was all about the one sun god and um, basically he had this cult of the one sun god of which he was the only kind of intermediary um, and uh, this capital built uh, by this heretic pharaoh was then abandoned shortly after his death and they all went back to the old polytheistic kind of way of doing things um, Akhenaten's great king's wife was Nefertiti who's the mother of Tutankhamun so the famous Tutankhamun is the next uh, generation on from this and again that's kind of quite interesting it's sort of what is it two on from a, what would have been a big kind of social event of the, the, the plagues the undermine, which were aimed at undermining various Egyptian religious beliefs um, if you uh, correlate that what the plagues are doing to various aspects of nature that the, the, the gods and the pharaoh were meant to be in kind of in charge of and providing through um, and the idea of a one god and a one main intermediary between god and the people and but you know it's kind of that's interesting but you know it's not a proof or a knockdown anything but it's kind of a hmm, it just makes you you wonder um and sort of seems to add another point in favour of that sort of early Exodus date. Is there any evidence of the Israelites in Egypt working this way? Uh, it's difficult to be as specific as that. There's certainly evidence of um, Asiatic slaves in Egypt. Yes. Um, but to be able to pin them down to a specific ethnic grouping... Um, is difficult, but you, you can certainly look at uh, frescoes of slaves making uh, mud bricks, for example, who are non-Egyptians. Um, would, would you count the Hebrews as Asiatic? Yes, that's right. That it, that's I, from what I glean. The general designation when they're saying uh, Asiatic, uh, that would include Semitic. Um, yeah. Is anybody non Egyptian or Africa? Yeah. Uh, so, mid. Well, yes, I think we're thinking sort of Middle Eastern. Yeah, okay. Middle Eastern rather than African. 
uh, I think. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I, I can have to look up the definition I'm only gleaning from the way in which it's being used in the text that I'm, I'm reading. Uh, so we have the Exodus. We get on to the conquest, going into the promised land, which all kicks off uh, famously with Jericho and the whole falling of the walls of Jericho and everything. Uh, this is Jericho, or what's left of Jericho, or actually what's left of the various different Jerichos that are all built on top of each other on the same site. Um, the more recent of which have, uh, because they're closer to the elements, have been eroded away over time, but the more distant in the past, you can still dig down and find the, the more preserved remains thereof. Would it have been on that level originally? Uh, no, it would not. It would have been somewhat like this. Um, you've got a sort of side cutaway here, top-down view with uh, two walls. On the side of the hill. Uh, yes, so it's sort of on a mound, and they had a sort of sloping bit at the bottom, and then the first wall, and then a, a section where there were stuff, uh, buildings in the middle, to then a second inner wall, um, again higher than the first wall. Which is interesting when you read things in the Bible, like when the wall fell, and it says the, 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 the Israelites went up into the city literally, rather than that just they went into the city when the wall fell. Mm. And went up into, well, if you know the archaeology, you know, well, that's what you'd have to do, <laughs> even if the wall fell. An amazing thing to try and conquer, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, so 45 and... When in the biblical account they say that the walls were wide enough to race chariots around, could they just remember the outer perimeter area was that wide, or was that actually uh, to Yes, I think so, because when it mentions, for example, Rahab's house was in the wall, the wall. Yeah. Um, you can see here, depicted and, and sort of in the archaeology here, this could have been a house, and it's got, got a window in the outer mm. wall of the... So do you describe this house as being in the wall, or inside the wall, or... Just part of the wall. Stormed in, but they and the family in the house were safe. Yeah. Maybe they didn't actually. Who knows? Maybe they weren't in at the time. Or perhaps they were by the wall. Yes. It's only sections of the wall collapsed. Doesn't doesn't necessarily the, the whole wall the, the wall collapsed. That's actually what modern archaeology is. Yeah, is that part of the city from that sort of time? Quite yeah. So it's, yeah. it's um, well, this is called the archaeology of city uh, four because I say there's various sort of cities built on top of each other. Now, um, city four is the one that would correlate with the early um, Exodus date. And from the archaeology, if you take various bits of the biblical report that specify particular things about the nature of the city and how it fell and so on, you know, the people went up into the city, um, the Israelites burned it, etc., etc., from though you get the exact correlation of these seven points from the, the archaeology of, of City 4 of Jericho, um, even down to... Um, here's Dr. Wood with uh, the collapsed mud bricks from the, from the outer wall that have fallen and tumbled down. It does lie in an area known for earthquakes. Um, 
and not to detract from the miracle, the miracle would be that it happened exactly at the same at the right time when you've when you've when you've gone to the bother of looking a fool by marching round it seven times. I've always had one thought that it was only as like a sound wave type thing. You shout loud enough, then yeah. Yeah, and then when they slid down, they then went right up into the city, as it as it describes. Um, and for example, another thing: these are some uh, jars full of grain found by archaeologist John Garstang at Jericho 4, which have been charred by fire. Now, that's very unusual, because if you're attacking this fortified military stroke kind of governance post that's guarding the main route, mm. trade route, um, what, one of the things you want to do when you attack someone else's stuff is take the loot. <laughs> and that would be the usual thing to do. Take the food, take the resources, or, to, or take it over. But to set fire to the place is quite an unusual military strategy um, but it is the one that's commanded by God in the Bible and here you know whoever um, whatever happened that destroyed City 4 which seems to have included the walls tumbling and the place being set on fire including the, the resources not taken as is said in the, in the Bible uh, but the dating of this city for is itself quite hotly contested. Uh, Dr. Brian Wood uh, is one of the main advocates of it linking with the, the, um, the whole conquest. And he says that, that pottery, the, um, the, the, where it comes in the levels that you dig down, uh, strategic graphic considerations, um, scarab data, dating it from sort of Egyptian ornaments, all point to the destruction around the end of the late, late Bronze Age. But there are quite a few scholars who would place these finds 150 years earlier than that. Um, and, of course, there were those who would place the Exodus and the Conquest later than this. Um, in which case, uh, Joshua's Jericho would lie at a more recent, perhaps eroded, archaeological level, and there's nothing to sort of be recovered. Mm -hmm. um, so it could have gone through the same page at an earlier time. Yes, I mean, at the very, again, at the very least you say, oh, well, that kind of thing obviously could happen to cities. Cities did fall with their walls going and people setting fire to all the resources inside, which seems counterintuitive, and having to go up into it, and it, that, those kind of things do match the biblical account, and at least in part bear out that kind of description, even if you can't say, look, here it is. Mm. But even saying within 150 years, because something that happened 3,500 years ago, that's less than a 5% error anyway. Yes, uh, it's, it's a lot of debating about the radiocarbon dating mm. of various bits of it and how reliable the radiocarbon dating methods are mm. and how you balance that data against data from other, sources, other ways of dating things, basically. And it's a whole big scholarly mess that I don't know enough to... Trying to enter, but uh, so probably 150 years actually when you put all those variables in isn't actually. Yeah, quite much. possibly. Hmm. Mm. How interest? How do they? Because these bits weren't just buried on. You know, they once their city was destroyed, they take bits to reuse it. So, do you mean you don't get clear strata as such? And guessing exactly which bits are from city, what you call for. You know, there was probably an evolution of it over time. You know, yes. Into another, into another, so. uh, 
Yeah, well, I think it might be a little more straightforward when, you, when you've got a city that's destroyed. Catastrophically destroyed, yeah. Um, than when you just have an evolution of yeah. culture. Um, so that probably makes it a little, a little easier. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, good question. Uh, any text messages or anything about... Uh, <laughs> yeah. okay. um, now, inscriptions and seals are particularly interesting archaeologically. Logically, because it's the kind of the blurring the, the boundary between archaeology and texts. Because mm -hmm. you've got written things that you dig up that are basically carved into pottery or stone or what have you. And of course, literary sources um, can, um, generally speaking, back up a lot more, or, or at least different kinds of things, than simply digging up, yes, there was a city in that location, or whatever. Um, so there's quite a few interesting things, and quite a lot of this is on display in the British Museum. If you ever get an opportunity to go to the British Museum in London, uh, you can see a lot of this stuff up close. Such as the Israel Stela from 1208 BC. Uh, it's from the reign of Pharaoh uh, Merneptah, uh, and it records an Egyptian victory against Israel, uh, which proves that there were Israelites in the land of Canaan by 1208 BC. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of puts an upper limit uh, on, the, on our dating. Uh, and it mentions a typical example of ancient Near East over-exaggeration in war reporting. Uh, Canaan is captive and all is woe. Israel is laid waste. His seed is not. <laughs> well, you know, exaggeration, but basically we won, yay. Um, but it you know, mentions Israel in that place by that date. So that's interesting. Uh, this is the, uh, supposedly the, the earliest example of um, early Hebrew writing. It comes, uh, I've got a quote here from Professor Gilil, who's translated it. It can, he says, it can now be maintained that during the 10th century BC, during the reign of King David, there were scribes in Israel who were able to write literary text and complex historiographies such as the Book of Judges and Samuel, which has been doubted by a lot of skeptics um, and he's now said look yes they, w they did have writing then uh, this particular to their culture um, and it's got an uh, English translation here it's not part of any biblical text but it's a text that has some similarities to various prophetic texts uh, looking about talking about looking after the poor uh, amongst you plead for the infant plead for the poor and the widow um, protect the poor and the slave, and so on. So it has a very sort of biblical ring to it um, as well. What does it mean during the 10th century BC? Ah, yes. Now, um, because, you know, talking about... Yes, BC and AD is far too Christian-centric. Um, they talk about... They change BC to BCE, which means before common era... <laughs> before the Christian era or before common era um, yes <laughs> it, it's just been physically that's right it's, it's political correctness gone mad yeah. and the Moabite stone from 840 50-ish BC is an extra biblical reference to Omri king of Israel mentioned in 1 Kings and 2 Kings Omri king of Israel and also there's a line which has been reconstructed by some as mentioning the house of David 
which is one of the few references that we, we have to the existence of a house of David. Which it also has no real record of David and Solomon explicitly really yeah. sources. That kind of, it's just before the threshold of where it starts slipping into extra biblical history. Yes, that's that's right. And then again, imagine that other people didn't really want to know about because David and Solomon militarily very successful. So <laughs> might have been defeated by people. Well people no, people didn't record their defeats, generally speaking. Um, yeah. So, and then they did exaggerate their Congress. Yes. Yeah, so it wasn't like the public years, but again, you know, there were those skeptics who said, "We've got no extra biblical data about the existence of the House of David." There you are. So it was all just made up in the exile period to 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 joy up the the Israelites. <laughs> it's like, well, this says no. <laughs> There was something by that name <laughs> in or before that period. Um, now the Tel Dan inscription, again from 840 BC, um, gives extra biblical references to several Old Testament kings and also to the house of David. Again, and this one is, is pretty much not disputed. The, the, um, the Moabite stone, I think, is a disputed reading of, of a sort of partially obscured line um, you can see how sort of cracked in things it is, but this one is, is much more solid. And it says... It's only 150 years before the exile. It's critical to show that there was evidence, because it's basically that, that's the, so much of the modern um, theological thinking that seeks to undermine mm. the Old Testament. says it was all like this, yeah. made up, you know, to give themselves a sense of history from the exile. If you date things that are solid even 50 years before that... Yeah. It's that I, just blown yeah, out of the water. That's right. So it doesn't need to be 1400 BC as long as it's before. It's pre-exile, yeah. and therefore it, it wasn't something that was just made up because of the exile. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Very, yeah. very solid point, Mike. Uh, talking about Solomon, as we just were, this is a recent find. This is from the Science Daily website, which I enjoy visiting, uh, from February 2010. Uh, so archaeologists have dug up what they think is part of Solomon's wall uh, mentioned in 1 Kings 3 uh, built by King Solomon in Jerusalem uh, in the latter part of the 10th century um, the archaeologist Mazar specifically cites 1 Kings 3 where it refers to until he, Solomon had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about I reckon this is the Wall of Jerusalem roundabout, part of the, the wall construction from that period. Ooh, this is good. The Black Obelisk of Shalamanser the Third. It's a great name, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> the Black Obelisk. Of, should be in some sort of sci fi movie. <laughs> This is in the British Museum. Who are you, Blacker? <laughs> uh, 85 BC. Uh, you can see there's various um, pictorial representations around here. Basically, each one of these goes around at all four sides, and each one depicts a different king uh, paying obeisance to Shalamansa III as a sort of subject. Um, five different scenes of tribute. Uh, included amongst whom is Jehu of Bit Omri, of ancient northern Israel. Jehu, King Jehu. This is the writing of Jehu. 
Assyrian, yes. So, and this is a close-up of um, King Jehu paying tribute to the Assyrian king. You can see here the Assyrian king and his symbol, and King Jehu, and above him a Star of David symbol. This is very interesting. This is the earliest pictorial representation of a Jewish king. King Jehu. Uh, 2 Kings 9 and, and 10. Uh, the seal belonging possibly to Queen Jezebel. <laughs> 2 Kings 9, for those who want to look it up if you're uh, listening along at home. Um, <laughs> Mario uh, Corporal concludes, I believe it's very likely that we have here the seal of the famous Queen Jezebel. Uh, that's 2008. Uh, well, I'd have to direct you to the to the paper that she writes, but it's um, it's uh, not a direct uh, because it doesn't like have her name on it. Um, but she uses the iconography on the the seal to argue that this was uh, a woman of power from a certain background that matches the biblical description of Queen Jezebel. Yeah, they found no more of the stolen the in the front of their homes. Yeah, mm. the dogs. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, here at the top, we have uh, the king whose seal is impressed in this uh, reddish-brown clay. So it's the impression of a seal. Uh, as I like to say, not the ar, ar, ar kind of seal, but the sort of one you seal your letters and goods with. Um, <laughs> king, <laughs> king Ahaz of Judah... Uh, it would be like him at all. <laughs> 732 Yeah. And the, the inscription in Hebrew on it reads, Belonging to Ahaz, son of Jehotam, king of Judah. And then below, we have, hooray, and, and uh, Brian will appreciate this, the seal of Hezekiah. Hooray for Hezekiah. Uh, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This is the seal of Hezekiah. Uh, it's the wing again. A lot of this, you'll notice, sort of carries on iconography from Egyptian. Um, uh, the, the winged beetle in the middle. And Hezekiah, he does because he builds a well. Oh yes, we'll come on to all. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, huh. and he showed the envoys around through some. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, we, we can go through the whole story here because there's quite a lot. We're getting into the there's more stuff. The more we get, of course, the more likely it is that stuff survives mm. from there. So we start being able to fill it in more and more. So Lashish was one of the chief cities of the kingdom of Judah yeah. in the southern uh, Levant, and in 701 BC it was captured by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Or Sennacherib. I'm not quite sure how to Sennacherib. People pronounce it in different ways. Uh, I, I, I always think of I always think of the of the of the what we now now in English called cherubs was in Babylonian cherubs, the cherubim and the seraphim. Uh, Sennacherib, I, I imagine, um, but I could be completely off base there. But this is a, a wall relief depicting Sennacherib's siege of Lashish, and knowing that this steamroller of uh, an army of conquest was coming, uh, Hezekiah uh, built a wall. Uh, this is excavations from the Jewish quarter in Old Jerusalem, uh, which has unearthed a section of the wall built by Hezekiah. 
Knowing that the Assyrians are coming, this is like, gulp, quick, we better up our defences, lads. Um, so it's eight metres high and eight metres thick, which is quite a decent wall. Um, and he also... Twice the width of his Yeah. Wants to secure the water supply, which he mentioned. There's a spring just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And he thinks, well, I don't want the enemy having that spring and cutting us off from it. So he dug a tunnel, had a tunnel, tunnel dug, and here's some pictures of the inside of Hezekiah's tunnel. When did they find this? I'm not sure when they found this. It's, it's been found for quite some time, this one. But I think more recent findings, they found a plaque uh, which has an inscription on it commemorating the construction of the tunnel and basically saying, we dug from the two different ends and phew, we met in the middle <laughs> after a bit of meandering. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, remember the relief when the Channel Tunnel diggers met in the middle, uh, and these guys doing it back in the um, eighth century BC. And I say, uh, mentioned in Two Kings twenty verse twenty. So he did a lot to uh, sort of sensibly prepare the defences, but also, as Mike was saying, uh, prayed to God. Now. Uh, so we have from 2 Chronicles 32, Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, saying this against him, Just as the gods of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my, my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And then it says, And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. Now this is Sennacherib's prism, which is his account from the Assyrian side of that campaign. Okay? This is very, very interesting. So here's a quote from translation from the Assyrian account of the same campaign. As for Hezekiah the Judite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by levelling with battering rams, and by bringing up siege engines, and by attacking and storming on foot by mines, tunnels and breaches, I besieged and took them. Okay, I took 46 major cities and all the countryside. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land, and to Miniti, king of Ashod, Paddy, king of Ekon, and Silibel, uh, king of Gaza, I gave them. And then he changes the topic. <laughs> What's the glaring kind of... He never conquered it. He didn't conquer Jerusalem. And he doesn't say why. He, he, he just says... Uh, and then we change the topic. Uh, now, it doesn't directly, you know, from the Assyrian side, support the biblical account, but it does mesh in a very interesting, people don't record their defeats, doesn't contradict it, and it is a very kind of interesting, what, why does he suddenly, apparently just kind of give up? Steamrolling all the time towards Hezekiah, I surrounded him, and then I, 
I'm delighted to go home. You know, very interesting. The murder of Sonera Cherub. Dum dum dum. Uh, two kings. So, um, Sonera Cherub, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew and returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalak and Sh- Shariza killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Asharadon, his son, succeeded him as king. Um, Isaiah had, had prophesied that not only would the city be saved, but that, um, and God said that uh, Shinarachar would, would die by the sword of his own land. So, for example, the 7th century BC Babylonian chronicles say on the 20th day of the month of Tibetu, Shinarachar, king of Assyria, his son killed him in a rebellion. And the Annals of Ereshadon, who is the, the younger son, the third son, he says, My brothers forsook the gods and turned to their deeds of violence, plotting evil behind my back. I had nothing to do with it. Committed unwarranted acts. To gain the kingship, they slew Snerecherub, their father. So, just as God had predicted, he died by the sword of his own land, and even more than that, the sword of his own family. Uh, Uh, 
dates to the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar II, and it names the official uh, Nebo Sarskin, who's described in Jeremiah as the chief eunuch. Um, and it gives him the same title as well, described as chief eunuch in the cuneiform there. Um, Jesus says, finding something like this tablet where we see a person mentioned in the Bible making an everyday payment to the temple in Babylon and quoting the exact date is quite extraordinary. You see here, it's mentioned in Jeremiah 39. Um, it's asking chief of the eunuchs. Now, talking of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah um, was written down by Jeremiah's scribe uh, mentioned in Jeremiah, a man named Barak, son of Neriah. This is uh, the seal of Barak, son of Neriah. Mm-hmm. So this is the seal belonging to the guy who wrote the book of Jeremiah. For Jeremiah. <laughs> because the seal says, on it, it says, this is the seal of Barak, son of Neriah, the scribe. Uh, yes, belonging to Barak, the son of Neriah, the scribe. Okay. So it's a kind of, well, how many of them were dotting around in the same time frame? So it's very likely that that's, that's the guys. Just on the, are we going to come back to Nebuchadnezzar or are we moving on? Oh, we're, we're moving on all the time, yep. I am sure that somebody or something or somewhere sometime I picked up on something that there is something in the records of Babylon which corresponds to Nebuchadnezzar kind of disappearing off the scene for a bit and then... Being... Yes, that would be the next slide. Oh, okay. What shape should I write my, my records on? The last time I think this, this might be what you're thinking of. Uh, it's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's King uh, Nab- Nabonidus. Uh, who mentions his co-regent Belshazzar. Belshazzar comes after Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. Uh, and it talks about Belshazzar, my firstborn son, the, the offspring of my heart. Um, and uh, I'm not quite sure what it says Nabonus was off doing, whether he was at war or on pilgrimage or something, but he left Belshazzar, his son, in charge. Well, I had to take note because Nebuchadnezzar couldn't... There's, I, I can't reference, there's something to where... Uh, what were you going to say? This is, yeah, there's something mm. about that, and I can't think what it is now. There's an extra-biblical mm. reference. Not that he goes mad, but just that he isn't in power for a bit, and then he is. Right. And I can't think what it is. I don't know, I haven't come across it myself, but that would be interesting if um, that is. Um, but this ties into the same kind of story um, section, obviously. And it is interesting in as much as it, it gives us a reason why, when, when we get at Belshazzar's feast, uh, and it says in Daniel 5.29, then Bel- at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And I think, well, hang on a minute, you know, Belshazzar's the king, described as being the king, why does he make Daniel the third highest ruler, rather than the, the second highest ruler? Well, this extra-biblical source gives us an explanation of why. It's because although Belshazzar was king, he was co-regent with the more senior Nabonidus, who wasn't on site, and so he only had the authority to make someone the third highest in the land. 
Um, so it shows the way in which sometimes the archaeology just kind of fills out one of those kind of, well, why is it, why is it like that? Mm. Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting, the way that, that, that meshes in. There we go. Well, the negative sides, A, tend to be we haven't dug anything up that relates to it. It tends to be that. Is, is this absence of evidence a reason for actually doubting it? And that kind of depends on, well, how likely is it that if the event did occur as described in the Bible, we would have dug up the evidence that corroborates it by now. It's kind of, um, you know, if I look in, in, in the corridor and I say that there's no, ev- no elephant in the corridor that I can see, it's quite good reason for thinking that there's no ev- elephant in the corridor. Look in the corridor and say, I can't see any germs. That's not a really good reason to think that there aren't any germs in the corridor. Because even if there were, you wouldn't expect me to see them. One of the um, big problems we've got is that with a lot of other cultures, the thing that you find which really gives the clue is something related to their gods. So, you know, you'll build great monuments, you'll have hieroglyphics, you'll have idols, statues. What did God command them? Don't build idols, yeah. yeah. So whereas they could have had giant statues of, you know, Yahweh built on cliff sides or, you know, little miniature house gods or whatever, mm. all those kind of things, occasionally they get built when they shouldn't have, but then they'd be uh, uh, coming back to God. And, you know, yeah. anyway, and they're copying the cultures around, so it would tend to be a Canaanite divinity yeah. or whatever, and if you dug it up, you'd think, oh, look, a Canaanite. You know. So the other thing <laughs> find that Israel were actually worshipping Yahweh would be non-existent, because the ones who were weren't building anything to say. The only thing that was is a temple, and we've got very good records of how that was built, and destroyed, and built and destroyed, yeah. and we pretty much can trace that his- the history of that right through to 78 in it. That is then concrete, extra-biblical sources mm. that there was a temple there, which was destroyed, but it tells us nothing about the early restoration. So like King Cyrus, there's no, there no records of Cyrus ever. Am I right about that? Again, on the, the dating thing, if, if, for example, you thought that the most plausible reading of the biblical text was an early Exodus date, and you thought that the, uh, the carbon dating evidence from Jericho 4 um, showed that that wasn't the Jericho of the, of the Exodus, and that... Um, uh, you might think, well, may- maybe they just lifted the story from an earlier episode. That would be a, a really straightforward way to account for that story, since that that sort of event did seem to have happened to that city, but just not at the right time period to put it when the Bible says it happened, um, which might give you a reason for thinking that there was something squiffy about the biblical text. But you can see the sort of train of ifs, of disputed ifs that that depends upon, um, and what you've never found any physical evidence that blatantly That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said that at the beginning. Yeah. Because of all the things they do find, little bits here and there, fit in mm-hmm. with the biblical text mm-hmm. rather than contradict yeah. it, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you the, the evidence, yeah. sort of sense that actually, it's actually better it's, to believe yeah. until it's not proved. Yeah. 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 And uh, 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 I was uh, trying to say, you know, it's, yeah. it's, mm. it's great, Pete giving all of this, but actually. You know, has he then just picked out 
There's a lot of sort of politicization of archaeology mm. as well in the Holy Land uh, between, for example, the Palestinians and the Jews. And if a Jewish archaeologist funded by a Jewish religious organization of a fairly conservative bent digs up something that they say relates to the reign of King Solomon or David in Palestinian territory, the Palestinian archaeologists say, you just want to believe that you're, inter you're interpreting it that way because you want to prove that you've got land rights over Palestinian territory. And the Jewish archaeologists say, you're only saying that we're interpreting it that way and you're interpreting it a different way because you don't want to admit that we've got... <laughs> uh, and so you kind of... Uh, how much of people's interpretation of the text is, is based in their political ideology, in their previous sort of philosophical beliefs, whether they're a materialist, atheist, or a, yeah. a theist or not. Um, and so it's really quite hard to judge some of the, the disputes about the interpretation of the data. And also, in the case of some artefacts, the authenticity, um, it's not a new thing. It's certainly taken on a whole new level of commercialization of recent years. People forging various artefacts and getting very sophisticated. There's a real, mm. real money market. Um, which is it's nice when you find something like a huge chunk of wall because yeah. no one's stuck that underground. <laughs> Sneaked it in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some really interesting ones. You can go and Google some of the recent findings um, are highly controversial. Some mm. of the things that people have supposedly found. If you just hit any search engine, you'll find a huge... And, yeah, it's very difficult to know because, obviously, there's an appetite for it. There's a lot of people who have who would be... Yeah, who are hungry to find evidence for it. And I actually suspect that if we ever found something, if somebody walked up with, you know, a anarch of the covenant or something, I'd say, there's no chance of it happening, because God probably wouldn't have some of that action that existed anymore. I suspect that, yeah, he would be quite happy for it to have been lost. Is there somebody who wants to think it's down in Sudan somewhere? Hmm. I would ask. A handful of really valuable things that they were made, which, had they survived, would have been, you know, amazing clues, were generally made of highly precious metals, and the kind of things where if they were caught and taken as um, banned by other people, and yet most of the stuff, the treasures of the temple, we know that in various raids by Babylon and Assyria, they were taken bit by bit, and yeah, would have been basically proof. Yeah, his son was goldy stuff, wasn't it, quite soon after? Yeah, straight into a mobile train, wasn't it? Which is quite tragic. They kept giving it away, didn't they?